Ernesto and the team a little praise offering. Good to have Ernesto back with us. Pastor Gabe is leading uh, leading worship at uh, the personal spiritual formation retreat for uh, the college this weekend. It's a very special weekend. This some of you have been a part of that before, and it's it's pretty amazing the life change that takes place. Um, I wanted to give thanks. Uh, so many of you helped serve last week and and all during the uh, uh, Easter weekend and. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but last Easter Sunday, we had 650 people. Uh, I'm still wondering how we did that exactly, you know. <laughs> we have never seen that many people. Uh, 8.30 service was, you know, it's a little fuller than it is this morning, but by 11.30, it just it just uh, snowballed. Uh, the sun- only 20 people turned out for sunrise. I, I don't think that pushed us over the edge there. I was like, I asked, asked Pastor Steve, he said, uh, well, last year we had 40, this year we had 20. I said, does that mean next year we'll have 10? What, <laughs> but we, uh, what a great weekend. A lot of people got touched by the Lord, and it was great to be together uh, over Easter. So it was awesome. Let's pray together, and we'll look at God's Word. Lord, we turn our attention uh, to your revelation, to uh, the, the truth that you speak to us through the pages of the Bible. Uh, Lord, we ask uh, even now that your spirit would illuminate this word to us, that we would be able to apply it to our hearts. And uh, I mean, I just think of what the psalmist said, that uh, of hiding your word in our hearts so that we might not sin. And just realizing that when your thoughts become our thoughts, something changes drastically in our lives. So would you give us uh, just a sense of your spirit settling in on us as we study and uh, learn together from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our text today is 1 John uh, 3. We've been doing a thing on God is from, it's turned into an expository study of uh, First John, and today we come to verses 10 through 18. Um, I'd like it if you'd read uh, God's word together with me out loud. Let's read together. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Well, since I'm the pastor, I get to show you a picture. This is my daughter. This is my daughter, Anna. And Anna, 
and uh, her husband Brian have been trying to have a child for a while and it was not happening. So they always have wanted to be foster parents. So this past year they worked very hard doing all the paperwork so they could be approved to be foster parents. And they had a number of close calls until just about a little over a week ago or so. And this little fellow came into their life. And uh, so my, my daughter and son-in-law are fostering this, this uh, young man who is just as handsome as can be and uh, who is ha a happy child. Uh, they say he doesn't stop except to eat and sleep. <laughs> Lisa is there this weekend, and uh, she said he gives lots of hugs and kisses and all kinds of stuff and then runs and plays. And... Uh, uh, the reason I'm showing you this is, one, I'm proud of my daughter and my son-in-law, and I think he's, this little fellow is one of the most handsome young men I've ever seen. And uh, it's possible, it's possible that this may end up be, being an adoption. The hope is it will be an adoption. But there is a, you know, there is a situation involved where uh, the, uh, the mom has neglected the child. And the home is not a safe place for this for this little boy, and so uh, you know, as a last ditch kind of thing to to save his life or to make him safe, uh, the uh, family services had to take him out of his home. Now, the re another reason I show you this is because it's a picture, and it's an important picture of how you and I come into the family of God. We do not have a biological right to call ourselves children of God. We have the right to say, I was created by God, but to be a child of God is a special relationship. There's an intimacy, there are rights involved, there are privileges involved. You are, in many ways, by nature, nothing more than a creation of a supreme and and uh, creating being. And so in being a creature, which doesn't sound very nice except in a horror movie, uh, but being a creature is not the same as being a son or a daughter. For example, you might have a painting that you, you love or you like or that you put on your wall and you admire it, but that is not the same. And you could say, this belongs to me. That is not the same as saying, this is my son, this is my daughter. The way, you know, maybe some people treat their paintings better than their children. But, but, but in, a, in a logical sort of way, the access that a son has, that a daughter has, the protection that they have, the value that is placed on this one who carries your very own DNA is radically different. And so the Bible says that, that in some ways, when we, are, when we are born, we are little more than a painting. We are little more than a cup that you use to drink your coffee out of. I mean, it, it, we are awfully arrogant cups, but, uh, but we are little more than a cup. That's, that's, that's really the value that you have. And, and when you recognize this and you begin to say, I was nothing more than a cup, and he has called me to be a son. And he has changed my status from uh, just being a creation to actually being a daughter or a son. And uh, everything changes, but it changes by adoption. 
You know, you, you know, the whole world many times thinks they have a right to speak to God any way they want to. But a cup doesn't have a right to speak to its master. Uh, the cup is only useful to the master as it's holding liquid. And there's some sense in which until we get a clarity of the grace and the mercy that God has shown us, we will be pretty ungrateful sons and daughters. Now, I showed you that picture of my daughter because this little fellow, he has no idea to be grateful. He has no idea that it's grace that has brought him into a house where they really, really love him and they're lavishing uh, all of their possessions on him and his temporary, at least, grandmother is lavishing all of her possessions on him. I got calls from the credit card yesterday. He has no idea these things, right? All he knows is he's living in it. All he knows is people are smiling a lot and people are dancing and, and people are bringing him toys. And he has no idea whatsoever and he has no words for it. He has no words, but he's... But he's living in grace. And he's living in mercy. And we, we say things like, oh, every child deserves. But in, in many ways, we all get what we deserve. It's when you get what you want, is really oftentimes you're getting what you don't deserve. You're getting that which you didn't work for, that which you didn't merit. And, and in some ways, there's no place where that's more true than family. You know, either if you come from a bad family, you get the worst of what you don't deserve. You get abuse. You get, you get un insecurity, unsafeness. You know, <laughs> I think I made that word up, but uh, you, you get this sense that you're not safe in a bad family. Nobody deserves that. And, and a good family, though, and, and a good set of parents and good siblings... You're, you're nurtured and cherished and loved. And, and, and that word lavish, many of us have never experienced that. And yet that's exactly the word it uses, that God your Father lavishes His love upon you. But see, if you just are never aware of that, and, and you're, you just think, well, He should treat me like this. And you're never aware that everything that's coming to you is grace and mercy. Not only will you not be grateful, but you won't be a very good son. And you won't be a very good daughter. It's only when you begin to realize, I, I need this, but I don't deserve this. And he's giving it to me out of grace. And, and what John is saying here is it becomes reflective of you understanding <coughs> This new status as a son that's been adopted or a daughter who's been adopted. It becomes reflective, one, on how you see God and how obedience begins to flow out of you. Where you begin to say, because he loves me so, I will obey him. But not only that, because he loves me so, I have love for others. See, as long as, you're, as, long as you are an unloved child then everybody is your competitor. As long as it's all about what I can earn, what I can get, what I deserve, then everybody else is really in your way. And they're just, they're just means to an end. 
This is a fascinating thing to me, and I, it took me a long time to get this. Family, friendships, relationships are not a means to an end. They are the end. They are the goal. See, if all I, I don't know if you've ever had this happen. I've had it before where people are using me, using my position, using that. You know, I'm sure none of the rest of you have had that happen before, but... But one of the ones that was fascinating, now some people are really good at it and they could charm you. And they can make, you see, make it seem like you're just, oh, you're it, you're everything, you hung the moon kind of thing. But the ones that get me who, try to, who, who really try to use me, are, they're already thinking about the next person they're going to use while they're talking to me. And you can see it in their eyes. They're already moving on to the next thing. And I, you know, and I sit there going... Are you kidding me? You think I can't figure this out? You see, when you're a means to an end, then, it, then you're just being used. You're not being loved. And the thing is that is, as, as maybe broken creatures as we are, we still tend to know when we're being used. And we know when we're being loved. And the, the truth is your soul flourishes when you're being loved and your soul dies a little when you're being used. So what, what John is saying is something radical has to change in the way you look at your status, in the way that you look at your source, so that people are not your source, but God is your source. Your relationship to the Father is your source. Now there's three things that I want to go over with you about this. The first one is kind of a hard one, and, and I just don't believe we should ever neglect the hard sayings of the Bible. The, in verse 10, listen to what it says again. You might have glossed over it when we read it earlier. It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Now, none of us, none of us would like, I don't know anybody that would really like being called a child of the devil. I mean, maybe there's some, and maybe we could start a T-shirt company with that on it. But, uh, but uh, most people, you know, generally speaking, would, would hate the idea that they are children of the devil. And so, you know, those of us who we really have faith in Jesus and we love Jesus and we believe the scriptures, we love the idea that we're children of God. We love that idea. The problem is most people want there to be a middle family. A family is neither a children of God family and, or a family that's not children of the devil. But here's what the Bible says. There's only two families. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. It's not an easy saying, and I, I say it as, with as much humility as I can muster in this, but the scripture says you're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. And in John chapter 8, I have it further in the notes here, but in John chapter 8, Jesus makes plain that religious people can be children of the devil. He goes up to the, to the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of his day, and they, they are dis, they're, they're abusing Jesus, they're, they're doubting him, they're, they're distrusting of him, and they're speaking against him in every way. And he comes up to them and he says to them, why do you, you, know, why do you stand against me? And they say, well, we're children of Abraham. So they go into their biology. 
We're children of Abraham. And he said, no, you're children of the devil. And he makes it very, very plain. And he says, you're not of, you're not of God. They want to say, but we're religious. And we have the right biology. And he says, no, you are children of the devil. It's not an easy thing. All of us would like there to be a spiritual Switzerland. You know, where it's kind of neutral territory. You know, where you could sort of say, okay, you know, I'm not all out for God, but I'm sure not all out for the devil. Here's the thing, friends. The devil counts as worship you worshiping yourself. The devil counts as worship of him you worshiping yourself. Because, see, he's deceived you out of worshiping God and he counts everything that is not worship of the true God as worship of him because he successfully deceived you. Let me, let me, let me show you what I mean by that. Every single person that lives, lives by faith. It's what you have faith in. It's funny, a lot of times people will say in Christians, or, you know, they, you're, it might be a seeker and kind of seeking God, and he'll say, wow, you Christians, you leap into your faith. You have to take this big leap of faith. I just don't, I'm not, a, I'm not a person who has faith. I'm not a person who believes. You see, the truth is, you have leapt. You just leapt the wrong way. You leapt into believing about yourself. You leapt into uh, lies that you believe to be true. For example, I would say one of the biggest lies that most people believe is they believe that they're competent to live their own lives. You know the first person who ever said he was competent to live his own life? Satan. The first created being who was ever who ever told God, I don't need you, I can do it myself was Lucifer. And so that, and some people like to, I think a, a good frame for him is to call him the rebel prince. He had a high and lofty position in the creation. But he was not satisfied with that. And he said, I don't want to serve you. I want to serve me. So in the end, every one of us has a religion. Every one of us has a faith. Every one of us is spiritual. The question is, do you say, let my will be done or not my will, but thine be done? It's either my will or thy will. I'm using King James because it sounds very religious right now. So you'll know the difference. Not my will, Jesus said, but yours be done. That's relationship. That's trust. That's, That's identity found in the relationship. But... If you say, not your will, but mine be done, then you believe the lie of the enemy, the lie that says you don't need God, you just need what you need for yourself. Um, I was listening to uh, a pastor talk about this in the city, uh, Tim Keller, who I like to listen to, and he told the story, this is all the way back in like 1995, and I went and looked it up, and he told the story about uh, the magazine Psychology Today. Any of you ever see that? I don't know. I think it's a monthly magazine. And so it's usually, you know, it's, it, it purports to be about psychology. All right? But really, it's about religion. Under the guise of psychology. Because psychology is a science. And a science is based on empirical observation reality. So what a science can do is that science can tell you what is. 
But a science stops in telling you what should be. As soon as something tells you what ought to be, what should be, that's religion. That moves from scientific uh, truth to religious truth. When you are told how to act, how to live, how to think, not just what you think, but how to think, you have moved from science to religion. And what you realize if you get that definition and you understand that truth is everybody is speaking religion. For example, the statement that people make all the time is you can believe whatever you want to believe. You can have whatever morality you want to have. And what they don't realize is that those are both morality and religious statements. But behind that morality and religious statement is, is this belief. There is no judgment. You see, if there is no judgment, if there is no ultimate judge, yeah, you can live any way you want. Just be pragmatic. Just try to get away with it. Honesty ceases to be the best policy if there is no judge. Come on, this is pretty good stuff. You've you got to think through this with me. You understand what I'm saying is if there is no judge, then there is no morality. There is nothing to believe. Everything's okay. So behind every tolerant statement is a belief that there is no judgment. And what John is saying is there is a judgment. And the judgment is, are you a child of the devil or are you a child of God? And that this is very ultimate. The end of the child of the devil is radically different than the child of God. I mean, as much, I I know that this, please, I hope the Holy Spirit will help you understand this. I I have a mug that I love to drink my coffee out of. Okay, I, I treasure that mug. It feels good every morning. I put different coffees, but same mug. The other day I dropped it. And I broke the mug, okay? And I broke it. And I was upset. But I lived. You understand? The death of the mug is not the death of my child. There's a radical difference between the death of a child of God and the death of a child of the devil. And the decision is, which is it that you want to be? Which is it that you want to be? This is what John is saying. It's not an easy saying. And I I know a lot of people like to avoid these things. But in the end, if this is the biblical truth, then everything hinges on, are you a child of God? And you don't become a child of God by willing yourself to be so. You become a child of God when you realize that Jesus died for your sins. When you realize that he is raised from the dead. When you realize that he did all that he did so the father could love you as if you were a natural born son or daughter of God. But here's the, this is kind of the the central truth of this. Is until you realize that you are evil enough that Jesus had to die for you and that you are loved enough that he chose to die for you, you'll never be a child of God. 
that you are evil enough that you, even you, the little sinner that you think you are, are wicked enough that the Son of God had to die for you. But you are loved enough that the Son of God chose to die for you. See, if you have those two tensions, you are, as hard as it may be believed, you are bad enough to live forever in hell. There is no such thing as venial sins. They're all mortal. They're all mortal. They're all deadly. And yet Jesus said, I will die for that because he loves you that much. And he takes the sting of death away from you and his resurrection is the death of death for you. It's powerful when you think of it. But in some ways, if you don't get the bad news, the good news never matters to you. If you don't realize what what John is saying here, he has translated you from death to life. And that makes all the difference in the world. Now, the, the generator, John says, of this spiritual life that is now ours in Christ, the generator is that it isn't just some kind of individual salvation where you then just try to trudge along and make it as best you can. But rather, you've been placed into a family. And to begin to realize, John says, that there's this family consciousness that we, you know, he, I love his, his phrase at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, behold, again, it's kind of a, a sign of wonder. Behold the manner, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Now, notice it's the word children, not just child of God. So it's a family consciousness. It's a, it's a connectedness like you've never had before, but always wanted to have. Actually, in this case, the blood of Jesus is thicker than the blood of your biology. And, and when you look at this, when you look at this, uh, I would say the ramifications or the consequences of being in the family, John is really clear. And, and and this is where many Christians go, I would say, go awry, is they immediately go into behaviorism. Behaviorism, or they go into kind of this sort of moralism, and they begin to do these do's and don'ts. You do do this if you're a Christian, and you don't do that. And it loses the impact. It loses the impact of this teaching. You see, all the world, every religion in the world has some of the same tenets as far as, you know, be nice to one another, be just. Do justly, act humbly. I mean, there, there, are, there are common tenets, but there is a, an extraordinarily different purpose. See, in every other religion, the actions, the behaviors, are there so that you can become a, a person that God can tolerate. It's, it's so that you will be what you hope to be. And rather, what John is saying is that we've already become this. That, that the biggest step is not to suddenly start doing, but to suddenly accept who you actually are and this wondrous change of who you are in Christ. This is why the most rotten sinner can suddenly become the greatest saint because they take hold of their new identity. And when they take hold of their new identity, behavior then flows out of that identity. As a matter of fact, John says it this way, that you might go back, you might go back to your unrighteousness, but it will never satisfy you again. 
You could go for a time or a season and say, oh, I want nothing more to do with God. But all of a sudden, even as you're doing the stuff that you shouldn't be doing, you're praying that to God you won't get caught. Are you praying he'll bless you in the mess in the mess that you're in? And then you realize, oh my goodness, I can't get away from God no matter what. Because you've changed. Because you've changed. And because now you are a child of God and you were made for the things of God. And so the things that are unrighteous and ungodly no longer fit your personality. They no longer fit in who you are. This is why we don't have to constantly harangue people. Don't do this. Don't do that. But rather, why we call to you and say, rise up, sons of God. Rise up, daughters of God. Live as you are, not as you were. And everything changes. You're not doing it to become a child of God. You're doing it because you already are a child of God. If we get this right, you, you'll see the source totally change in your life. You begin by saying, I, to me, I start this way. I say, my, my behavior flows from my identity. My behavior doesn't define my identity. My identity defines my behavior. So if I know who I am, then my behavior will fit with who I am. But my identity doesn't come from behavior at all. It comes from relationship. Everything in Christianity flows along relational lines. That's why when people say, I don't need a church, I don't need a community, they're just believing a lie. You're not a child of God alone. You're part of the children of God. You're sitting next to, even if you don't like them, other sons and daughters... That God put there to knock the rough edges off of you. We are a chosen family. Not always choice family, but a chosen family. In terms of God puts us together. Do you know, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was realizing that the church that I had was the church God wanted me to have. Because when I first started in ministry, I was always like, God, I, why did you give me these people? Why do I have to shepherd these sheep? Could you just, could you give me some others, you know? These are just, these bite all the time and they complain all the time. And they wander off all the time. And it wasn't until I, I just realized, this is who he wants me to have. Because he's teaching me how to love. He's teaching me how to love. You know, whether they ever love me or not, he's teaching me how to love. And it made all the difference in my life because I began to understand how to love, not from affection, but to love from relationship. I mean, there is some sense, even in this biological world of your own family, there's an unconditional nature to family. Uh, as much as we'd like to get away from them, no one has ever probably gotten more out of you than your family. You've, you've given more to them and gotten less back at times and, and, and you've, you've put up with things from them that you would never put up with with anybody else. There's an unconditional nature to family. If some of your family members uh, treat you like your job treats you, at your job you quit. Your family, you're still connected. 
and it's usually Christmas, you know, and I, I, it's just amazing. It's just amazing that when you start to understand you were not placed into a religion, a philosophy or a morality, you were placed in a family and you are a brother and and your contribution is essential to the whole family. The family doesn't function without you and without your growth and without you moving forward. Now, there's a, there's a psychology that comes then in this that is actually very healthy for you. And it all, the source of it is you're the father of the family. I, I titled this message, God is the father of a very different type of family or a new type of family. Now, here's what the, your heavenly father promises to you because this is the love that he gives you. One is your father has nothing that he's holding against you. Could you say that with me? My father has nothing he's holding against me. This is really important. You've got to get this, friends, because your earthly father or mother used to pull strings. You remember those 36 hours I was in labor with you? You will come visit me Thanksgiving, you know? I put up with that for you. You can put up with, you know, I mean, it's just natural that human beings use leverage against each other. It's the opposite of love. It is, it is not love. It is binding kind of obligation. It's not love. It's not satisfying. But what the Bible says is your father, everything he had against you, he's already exhausted on the cross. All hidden stuff, all the things you think would be shameful, should be secret, it's all been nailed to the cross. The Father holds nothing against you. So there's no reason for you to be secretive or to hide or to lie to your Father. Or even to excuse yourself or dress it up because the Father's not going to ask for two payments for the same sin. He's already got the payment in His Son Jesus. So the Father holds nothing against you. You see, so you're not going to show up at the Father's house and go, you know, I've been waiting about 20 years for this to happen. Now I'm going to let you have it, okay? Because he already let Jesus have it. There's nothing left, okay? You see, that's the beauty of the gospel, and it's the beauty of unconditional love. The second thing is this, and, and you, you need this. The Father has bound himself to your destiny. He's committed through thick and thin. You can run away, but he'll still be there for you. You can test him. And many people do. They're like, they can't, you can't possibly love me. I'm going to go do this. And his father's like, I'll be here when you come back. Because he's bound himself. He, there's an element of trust that the father has in you and for you. That even in your darkest nights, there's nothing that you do that disappoints or surprises him. You can only disappoint someone who doesn't know the future. And our God has two relationships with you. He has a future relationship and a present relationship. So he already knows what you will be. He's already treating you as if you have arrived. And he's bound to you getting there. That's his, that's his commitment. That's his commitment. Now, let me say to, to you one other thing from my, like my daughter's experience. My daughter doesn't call me up and say, oh, this little boy is so lucky to have me as a foster mother. 
My daughter calls me up and says, I am so happy to be able to love this child. You understand? That's love. Love isn't where you go, you better be grateful. You better be grateful. I'm going to make, you know, or, or my dad's favorite one is, you're crying? I'm going to give you something to cry about. You know, that kind of manipulation and all that stuff going on. See, your father is activated by your need, not aggravated by your need. His love is activated. That, that little boy in my, in my daughter's home, her love is activated by her, his, his need. And she's going to do everything in her power to protect and love and serve him. And if it's the best thing for him to go home to his mother, she will let him go. Because she loves him that much. Already. If my daughter can do that, being just a human, how much more your heavenly father knows everything that he's getting into with you and he's not going to let you go. He has a joy in who you are, what you're becoming. In him you have a secure future and he will never stop. See, the nature, the true nature of unconditional love is that it never ends. You and I have lied to people many times. And we said, I love you. But we didn't really love them. We had affection for them. Or we liked what they brought to us. Or we liked how they looked. Whatever it was. Or we liked how they made us feel. And so we felt something. And in English, love is a sloppy word. Because you can love a sofa as much as you love, you know, or your TV as much as you love a person. Or a mug. Until you break it. And then it lets you down. <laughs> Although someone sent me a new one, so nice. Here's the mark that John says of the Christian. This is that we love one another. And again, it's not moralistic. It's not behavioristic. You know, because we recognize, and John says it this way, we love him because he first loved us. It's always our response to love. So... The Christianity of the first century amazed the people of, of that time because of their manifestation of love. And Antioch is a prime example. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to close up our time talking about Antioch for a minute. Antioch was a walled city. It had interior walls as well as exterior walls. And within those walls was a division of races. Whatever nation you were from, whatever ethnicity you were, you lived in the wall of your ethnicity. And you did not cross over. Even... To this day, Jerusalem has four uh, different ac uh, ethnic quadrants, and they're, they're very radically different, and there's a lot of uh, um, hostilities between them. But when the church came to Antioch, and it was one of the first places that the love of Jesus came powerfully to Antioch, everything changed in Antioch. Let me read you a little bit about this. Said, As people from various races, classes, and conditions came to faith in Jesus Christ, he reconciled them to God the Father and therefore to each other. The church, therefore, has an inherent and God-given diversity. As Paul wrote to the divisive Christians at Corinth, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, so it is with Christ. Paul himself experienced a rich and blessed diversity in the church of Syria and Antioch, where for the first time Jewish and Gentile Christians worship God together on equal footing. The Antioch Church's multiculturalism is dramatically displayed in the names of its leaders as listed in Acts 13. Barnabas was a wealthy, wealthy Cypriot-born Jewish Levite. 
Simeon, called Niger, was probably a black African proselyte to Judaism. Lucius of Cyrene, probably a Greco-Roman from North Africa. Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, a Hellenized Jewish aristocrat whose name is the Greek form of the Hebrew Menahem. And then Saul, a Tarsus-born Jew raised in Jerusalem, otherwise known by the Greco-Roman name Paul. This is, this is an unheard of diversity. These people wouldn't even have talked together, wouldn't even have been in the same room together. And here they are, they are the leaders in the church in Antioch. The book of Acts emphasizes the cultural diversity of the Antioch church because it was here that the disciples were first called Christians. Now, we're used to the word Christian, but the, here's, what, here's what happened is they saw rich and poor, Jews and Greeks, they saw you know, people from Africa along with people from Asia. They saw all these people crossing the walls, worshiping together, loving each other, giving to each other, sharing their resources with one another. And they said, we've never seen anything like this before. They saw Jewish religion and Greek religions and African religions, but they'd never seen a religion where it was this diverse. And they said, these people love each other. They love beyond ethnicity. They love beyond socioeconomic factors. They love beyond the wall. And this is probably why Paul uses that wording in Greek. He says, Jesus has become our peace by destroying the wall between us. And what John says, John says, this is the mark where you know that you truly are in the family is that you love the family. You love the family. And the family is rich and is poor. The family is white and black and every shade. The family is every, every tongue, every tribe. There is a, a, a dignity that is given in love to a brother, to a sister, to say, you are, you are valuable to me. I will lay down my life for you. I will sacrifice for you. I will give myself for you. I will lift you up. I will encourage you. I will stimulate you to love and good deeds. I will go to bat for you. I will have your back for you. All of these things that all of us know what love means, but very seldom do we either experience it or give it. And so in many ways, many, many ways, friends, the church has been, particularly in America, has been incredibly weak in the main mark. We've liked people who are like us and not loved people because they really are of us. They really are our brothers. They really are our sisters. And it doesn't matter if we agree on every theological point. It doesn't matter if we agree on every cultural point. We are still linked for all eternity. And the love that brought me from being a child of Satan and brought you from being a child of Satan has now brought us into a new family. And this family, John says, is a generator of spiritual power for your life. And instead of running away from it, he calls us to run to it and to run to each other. He says even, he, he says, you know, on the negative side, he says, if you have murder in your heart, you're like Cain. And if you see your brother or sister and they're in need and you don't care, you're the same as Cain. But if you know and get it, see what I, why I put that picture is I realize I'm that little boy on my, on my daughter's knee. That's me. I mean, I, 
I could be excited that, you know, I have some resources and I can help this little fellow. But the truth is, I'm him. And until you get it that you're him, you will never really be in right position. But as soon as you do, you go, thank you, Jesus. And then you stop trying to earn, you stop trying to measure up, and you just start receiving. You start receiving. How do you love your brothers? You first receive love. How do you love those who aren't like you? You first receive love. You first allow yourself to be loved. You can't love anybody from an empty tank. You can't produce it. You have to receive it. John says, behold, what manner of love the Father has for us. Would you stand with me? Does it make sense? You can clap. I like it. It's at least one of my love languages. <laughs> can I, ask you, I want to ask you to do two things. Will you close your eyes with me and I'll ask you to do two things. Every day... As many times as you could say it, if you're a woman, I want you to, I'd like you to say, I'm a daughter and God is my father. And I want you to say that if you're a son, I'm a son and God is my father. I want you to get out of being a cup. I want you to be a son. I want you to be a daughter. I want you to be a living, breathing, you know, I don't want you ceramic anymore. I want you, I want you full of the, of the life of God, of being a son or a daughter. And when things happen, go to your father. Don't curse your, don't curse your creator. Because you're not a cup anymore. Praise your father. Give thanks to him. Even the things that he's allowing in your life, he's allowing so you can become more son-like, more daughter-like, less cup-like. Is that making sense to you? I mean, as long as you think you're a cup, you're going to be mad at all the hot drinks that are poured into you and all the cold, cold drinks. You'll want, your, you'll want things lukewarm. But God said, you know, I don't, I don't want you lukewarm. I want you hot or cold. I want you alive, in other words. And being alive means it hurts. It means you can feel the pain. But if you do this every day and you walk into your identity, I am a son, I am a daughter, and you do that every day. And then the second part is how can you love now as a son? Not to be a son are you loving, but because you are a son, because you are a daughter. Is it the best way to be loving to be critical? Is the best way to be loving to be a complainer? Is the best way to be loving is to dump all the worries and cares, to be angry, to be frustrated? Is that the best way to love or is there a better way? I think a son or a daughter figures out a better way. If you are in your sonship because of grace, how much more then does it make sense to show grace to those around you? Truth and grace together. Lord, would you seal up what you're doing in our midst? Would you say this with me? I receive my sonship. This is who I am. And this is how I will act. Out of my identity. Thank you, Jesus. 
Amen. Amen. Would you give four or five hugs to your brothers and sisters before you go?